Hello and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today we will pick up our series of lectures on the Iliad with Book 8. Our translator, Robert Fagels, gives a title to Book 8, The Tide of Battle Turns. Zeus becomes proactive about answering Thetis' supplication. Achilles will be honored through the slaughter of the Achaeans. And so the Trojans bring the fight to the Achaeans in a way that makes the Achaeans deeply feel a need for Achilles. So, that in Book 9, an embassy will be sent to persuade Achilles to return. This time, or for this lecture rather, instead of relentlessly focusing on juicy passages, um, especially as we did in Books 5 and 6, we will follow the action of the book as a whole as it unfolds, paying attention to which side is truly stronger, and noting the interplay or conflict between prudence and courage that characters from both sides show. The classicist Malcolm Wilcock, who we've learned things from before, um, he makes a strange suggestion about Book 8. He says that, quote, Book 8 involves a complete day's fighting with a great deal of divine activity. Zeus arranges for the Trojans to be victorious, and the pro-Greek goddesses attempt to thwart him. The effect, however, is confused because the poet has a patriotic bias and tends to indicate that other things being equal, the Greeks are still more than a match for their opponents, even in the absence of Achilles. Now, if the Trojans have a difficult time pushing the Greeks back, even with Zeus's help, why does that have to be a bias or a false opinion on Homer's part? As we saw in Book 7, Hector is not a match for Ajax. We haven't seen any Trojans attempt to fight the gods like Diomedes does. We also learn in Book 9 that the Achaeans have sacked 23 Trojan cities up to this point. Now, sure, they did so with Achilles fighting, and Achilles surely is an extraordinary fighter. But it would seem to be the case that the Achaeans are indeed much stronger than the Trojans. That doesn't have to be a bias or a distortion of the truth. One side can be more powerful than the other. Um, and it seems to be that case uh, with the Achaeans. Now, speaking of power levels not being exactly what they seem, Book 8 begins with Zeus's decree that the gods should no longer intervene on either side of the conflict. They will be thrown into Tartarus forever if they do so, and Zeus trumpets his superiority over the other gods. He says, quote, Hang a great golden cable down from the heavens. Lay hold of it, all you gods, all goddesses too. You can never drag me down from sky to earth, not Zeus, the highest, mightiest king of kings, not even if you worked yourselves to death. That is, <clears throat> that is how far I tower over the gods. I tower over men. Now, no doubt Zeus is powerful, but his statement of strength rings somewhat hollow when we consider why he owes Achilles' mother Thetis a favor in the first place. Thetis assisted him when he was bound by the other gods, when she released the monster Briarius to aid him. In other words, a key spring of the arc of the Iliad is the fact that Zeus was vulnerable at one point and required assistance, at least in the past. Furthermore, it is worth noting that the gods don't take Zeus's threat seriously. Athena insists that she should be able to offer tactical advice and then Zeus strangely says that nothing he said is meant in earnest. We can also note that later in the book, 
Hera tries to join the field, and she's more or less slapped on the wrist. Zeus speaks harshly to her, but she's certainly not thrown down into Tartarus. Now, after Zeus has this conversation with the gods and makes his decree, he then dons his armor. Now, this could be merely mm, ornamental or a kind of formal symbol or something along those lines. But generally speaking, one only puts on armor if they are in need of protection, an indication that they would be vulnerable without the armor. Now, however this may be, uh, fighting recommences. Um, And there's another interesting Nestor moment once the fighting comes back, and and maybe even two Nestor moments, uh, we could say, since we've been following up on Nestor to see, to some extent, if he's a character who's as wise as Homer is, or if Nestor possesses the greatest approximation of Homeric wisdom. Maybe I haven't put it that strongly before, but I'm, I'm curious if this is the case. So Zeus lets loose thunder and bolts of lightning um, that are manifestly against the Achaeans, or at least they're interpreted by most of them in this way. And so all of the Achaeans run, except, Homer says, quote, Nestor alone held out. Now, if you've been clued into Nestor's striking heterodox views like we have, you might suddenly wonder if Nestor thinks that the bolts of lightning are natural rather than divine, hence why he alone held out. Um, If we look at that sentence as a standalone, Homer, though, does give a very different reason for why Nestor held out, noting that one of his horses was hit by Paris with an arrow. It is just striking, though, as you read or listen, to see that Nestor alone held out, that that sentence, the way that it sort of rings out before you know more context, is sort of striking. So that formulation suggests that he held out, that he alone held out, but he either had knowledge or courage that the others didn't. At least I think this is what you would think when you hear this line by itself. And Homer goes one more line before he tells us that Nestor unwillingly held his ground because of his injured horse. In other words, at first sight, Nestor seems as if he interprets events differently than the others. But then Homer pushes against this possibility a moment later. Now, this moment surely by itself would not be enough to confirm that Nestor has some kind of Homeric understanding or something along those lines. But if you take it together with many of the moments we've discussed in previous lectures and in a moment we'll discuss later in this lecture, it might be a small, subtle piece of evidence amongst others. Um, At any rate, Hector begins closing in on Nestor, and Diomedes cries out to Odysseus that the two of them together ought to save Nestor and stand against Hector. Um, But I think at this moment, Homer tells us a joke. Uh, Here's the quote. But long-enduring Odysseus never heard him. Down he dashed to the hollow Argive ships, end quote. Perhaps Odysseus is long-enduring precisely because he has bad hearing. Uh, and Homer, you know, permits us to think of him this way. He sort of maybe saves Odysseus from blushes. Um, now, this isn't the first time that Odysseus has not heard something. Um, if you look back at our lecture on book four, we can see that um, he was supposed to be putting his troops in order, and that he probably did know that he was supposed to be putting his troops in order. But, you know, he tells Agamemnon, I, I didn't hear you. So this is the second example of Odysseus's bad hearing. And yeah, again, maybe he's long-enduring precisely because he can't hear some things sometimes. So, without the help of long-enduring Odysseus, Diomedes gets Nestor up onto his chariot. And then, 
instead of driving away from Hector's team, he drives directly at Hector's team. He aims a spear at Hector, but is only able to kill his driver. Speaking to the power of the Achaeans, Zeus has to intervene a second time in the book. Now he shoots lightning directly at the hooves of Diomedes' chariot team. Nestor tells Diomedes that they need to retreat, and Diomedes insists that he can't because Hector will hold this over him. Uh, he'll tell jokes at Diomedes' expense. He will, you know, vaunt over him. As Homer puts it, quote, uh, this is what Nestor says back to, uh, to Diomedes. So, quote, but the noble horseman Nestor shouted back, nonsense, steady, Tydeus' son. Such loose talk. Let Hector call you a coward. Scorn your courage. The Trojan and Dardan troops will never believe him nor will the wives of the lusty Trojan shieldsmen, never. You flung their lords in the dust, laid them low in their prime. Diomedes' courage, that's end quote, Diomedes' courage, his manliness, tells him that turning back against foes is never permissible, no matter what the odds, not even if it means going up against Zeus himself. Um, and many characters when he was on his Aristiat said that it was almost as if he wanted to fight Zeus himself. It seems that Homer might be, with this quotation from Nestor, playing another joke with his epithet, or the sort of descriptive statement that comes before a character's name. For here, as Nestor makes the speech telling Diomedes to retreat, he says, Nestor is noble. He says, noble Nestor. Whereas, it might be the case that long-enduring would be a more fitting epithet to mention here. Um, as I might have said before, um, a noble action is a beautiful one. Its beauty or resplendency is proportionate to the difficulty or self-sacrifice demanded by the action. To be noble is to be free. It is to have contempt for mere life. When others say, that is too difficult or dangerous, so I cannot do it, the noble human being sees a choice. Rather than live as a slave, he can defy what others claim are necessities, like danger or death. Which is to say, then, the noble Nestor tells Diomedes that his contempt for death is foolish or mistaken. He tries to help Diomedes save face by insisting that after all that Diomedes has done, after all of the Trojans that he has cast down into the dust and sent down to Hades, no one would really believe Hector if he called Diomedes a coward. Diomedes, at least for a moment, relents and retreats. Hector predictably, as Diomedes thought he would, taunts Diomedes, and he feels himself torn in two as he wavers on whether to retreat or to face Hector. He wavers three times, just as he had run up against Apollo three times during his Aristia. And it would seem that he only relents this time because Zeus thunders each of these times as he wavers. It takes then a total of five thunders from the king of the gods in order to get a man like Diomedes to step away from the heart of the fight. Perhaps he realized that it truly wouldn't be possible to perform his courageous action. And now this is a stretch where it's not something exactly that Diomedes says or thinks, um, and I'm relying on Plato's Lachis as opposed to say something like this, but it could be that since he knows that courage is good and it's not foolish, he can retreat with a good conscience, so to speak, knowing that he didn't attempt the impossible. Because to attempt the impossible would be to do something foolish, and to do something foolish would be to do something bad. And to do something bad 
wouldn't be courageous because courage is a virtue and virtues are good. Um, with that said, Hector rallies the Trojans and then briefly speaks of his horses, whom his wife Andromache looked after. He notes that she often served the horses with choice food, even before serving him. On one hand, this presents Andromache as a sweet animal lover. This woman loved the animals more than her husband. But one wonders if Andromache could have taken such care with the horses precisely out of a concern for Hector's future, that these horses would somehow be of service to him on the battlefield. Then Hera rallies the Achaeans. Agamemnon then prays to Zeus, noting that he had always been diligent with his sacrifices. And Zeus is moved by pity to send a rallying sign of an eagle to the Achaeans. Zeus is moved by the passion of pity instead of following his plan. His pity only extends the duration of the pain that the Trojans and Achaeans have to endure. For Homer notes that the Trojans would have been able to light the, light the boats on fire now had not Hera and then Zeus intervened. So Zeus is moved by pity at seeing those who honor him suffer. But by helping them in a half-hearted way, he only increases their pain over the long run, just giving them temporary help now. Now that's one way to understand what Zeus has just done, but I think there's an alternative way to understand Zeus's action. If the boats were lit on fire now, then the remarkable embassy scene in Book 9 would never have come to pass. A scene where, among other things, Achilles lays out sort of the conditions for when or why he would return to the fighting, namely when the ships catch fire. Also, uh, as happens in later books, Nestor would have never primed Patroclus to ask Achilles about taking the field later, which really does ensure that Achilles returns to the fighting. At this moment in Book 8, it is not altogether clear what, if anything, that Achilles would have done if the ships caught fire. So, if Zeus is not overwhelmed by passion, and he is keeping a view to his plan, then it might make sense for more things to be set up before allowing the Trojans to burn the ships. After this, Teucer, uh, the Achaeans man who shoots arrows, is hiding behind Ajax's shield, and he kills a total of 10 Trojans at least, um, including Hector's new driver. This is apparently a very tough job to have if you want to drive Hector's chariot around. You'll probably die because Apollo will deflect your spear or the spear's thrown at Hector uh, in arrows and they'll probably hit uh, you as the driver. So it's a very tough, difficult job to do. Um, but Hector gets off of his chariot and he throws a mighty rock at Teucer, rendering him unable to continue shooting. Now, um, as Hector chases fleeing Achaeans after throwing this rock, Homer offers a simile that confirms, I think, what we noted at the outset regarding the relative levels of strength between the Achaeans and the Trojans. Um, Hector was, quote, like a hound that harries a wild boar or lion, hot pursuit, snapping quick at his heels, hindquarters and flanks, but still on alert for him to wheel and fight. So Hector harried the long-haired Argives, killing the last stragglers, end quote. In other words, Hector is compared to a smaller, a smaller animal, a hound, chasing larger animals, uh, a boar or a lion. Now, the lions in Greece at this time weren't as big as the lions you'd find on the African continent or something like that. 
but they're still going to be bigger than most hounds. Um, so we should note as well that after Hector throws the rock at Teucer, what does he not do? Well, he certainly doesn't go and try to finish Teucer off. After all, Ajax is now standing before his body. So rather than go toe-to-toe with a man who's gotten the best of him back in Book 7, Hector kills fleeing Achaeans, whose names Homer doesn't even mention. Now, from the standpoint of prudence, it might be good to maximize the number of kills while the enemy is in flight. But from the standpoint of nobility or manliness, quality is what matters, not quantity. It is striking, then, that Hector, who told Andromache earlier that he doesn't fear death, conspicuously avoids confronting Ajax here. Wouldn't that have been something to kill Ajax um, if you want to succeed ultimately in the war, rather than killing people who run, killing the man who will actually stand and fight uh, would have been a much bigger uh, accomplishment, I suppose we could say. Um, uh, In closing, then, as we move towards the end of Book 8, we see that Hera and Athena are also moved by pity, just as Zeus was earlier and Hera seeks to take the field so that she can punish Hector. Zeus detects this, and she is not allowed to intervene. He does, though, disclose part of his plan to Hera, which might be a kind of confirmation that earlier Zeus wasn't merely moved by pity, um, that rather maybe he felt some pity, but that his pity was not inconsistent with him accomplishing what he wanted to accomplish. So as he discloses his plan, he notes that Hector will never quit the fighting, until Achilles rises after Patroclus dies. The book ends then with the confident Trojans daringly camping outside their own walls. What will the Achaeans do? Find out next time as we turn to book nine. Uh, Brian Wilson is out.